when Darcy and I first got married, we lived in Clifton, Colorado. And uh, Clifton, Colorado is in an area where there are a lot of fruit orchards. And by a, when I say a lot of fruit orchards, I mean a lot of fruit orchards. Uh, Palisade is just right near Clifton, and it's known for its peaches. When you're in Colorado and you say Palisade peaches, people will know that you are talking about the best peaches in the world because Palisade is where they are grown. And during harvest time, when peach harvest happens, usually late September uh, is when peach harvest happens. And when peach harvest happens, it's all hands on deck because peaches don't last very long on the tree. Once they're ripe, it's just a little bit of time there before they start falling off the tree. So when it's harvest time, everybody is harvesting. Now, Palisade has what they call a peach festival. So when all of the harvesting is done, everybody gathers in Palisade. They sell their harvest and do all of this peach stuff like, like peach pie and peach cobblers and, and all of that peach stuff that goes on. And they sell that and they have this festival and a parade and everything. So the peach harvest is a huge thing in Palisade, Colorado. It's a, it's a huge event, something about harvest time that does that. This week we're stepping away from our journey through 2 Corinthians. And we want to take some time this week and we're going to emphasize missions. And we want to just take some time to focus on missions and kind of remind ourselves that we do as a church need to have a mission emphasis. We have to have a mission mindset. And so this year, the mission committee has chosen the theme harvest time. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. This was the passage that the missionary committee selected for us to examine. And so that's what we're going to dive into this morning and examine that text. So open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. If you go to 2 Corinthians, it's just to the left. If you open up to Genesis, it's a long ways to the right, okay? Your Bible's broke into both of those places. But Matthew chapter 9 is where we are this morning. And find verse 35 there. Matthew 9, verse 35. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. <coughs> then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as we dive into this passage, there are three headings that we're going to use that are going to kind of lead us through this. The first thing we see is Jesus' compulsion in verse 35. Then we see his compassion in verse 36. And we see the commission in verses 37 and 38. Before we dive into this this morning, let's just pause for a moment and pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning that you've given to us, and Lord, we're grateful for your word, and I pray, Lord, this morning as we open your word, that your word would be open to us, that our hearts would be open and ready to drink in what you have for us. I pray, Lord, there's nothing that I share that's not of you, uh, and I pray, Lord, that what is shared would be of you, and I pray we would hear you 
So Lord, just take my mind and my heart and my tongue, and Lord, allow me to share with your people what you'd have them to hear. Nothing more, Lord, but certainly nothing less either. We pray all of these things in your son's perfect name. Amen. Now, the first thing we want to look at this morning is the compulsion, Jesus' compulsion. Look at verse 35 with me. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. As we go through the Gospels, we follow the ministry of Jesus. And as we follow his ministry, we see that he went all over Jerusalem. Uh, he went to the cities and he proclaimed in the cities. And when the crowds got too big there, he moved into the outskirts and he didn't come into the, into the cities anymore. And he began to just minister uh, to the villages. But as Jesus ministered, he traveled all over Israel, sharing and teaching and ministering uh, as he traveled. We look at verse 35 there. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. In our journey through the Gospels that we've been doing on Wednesday night, we have seen Jesus' ministry in the synagogues. And as Jesus went and as Jesus ministered, anytime there was a group of people gathered, Jesus would teach. I remember reading somewhere that uh, anytime the church has more than three people, the offering plate is passed around. That could be true. But, you know, anytime when two or three people were gathered, Jesus was teaching. Uh, it didn't matter if it was just a few or if it was a whole bunch. Every time that Jesus had the opportunity, he took advantage of it, and he never wasted those times. Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, was about three years long. And during those three years, he made the most of those three years, teaching and sharing and ministering uh, as he went. And this says he was teaching in the synagogues. Now, as we think about the synagogues, this would have been groups of Jews who would have been gathered together. They would have had the Old Testament, and they would have been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so as Jesus gathered, they would oftentimes let visiting rabbis come in and teach. And so Jesus would come and they would give Jesus the floor and he would teach. And he would share with them from the Old Testament the truths about the Messiah. And his purpose in doing that was to show that they could see that he himself was the Messiah. And so Jesus was teaching that and giving them opportunities, expounding the Old Testament, showing them the evidence, hoping that they would see, hoping that they would understand, hoping that they would recognize who Jesus was. Now, verse 35 continues, and it says, in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the word that's used here for proclaiming uh, is often translated preach. And so not only was he teaching, but he would also take opportunities to preach. And he would proclaim the world, this, the word. This word for, for preach means to herald a message. Like a messenger would go from town to town and say, hear ye, hear ye, uh, in the name of the king. And that's exactly what Jesus would do as he proclaimed the message of the kingdom publicly and to others. Now, as we think about the proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus was, in fact, telling them about the future millennial kingdom. And that's what they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the Messiah coming down and setting up his throne in Jerusalem and ruling from Jerusalem. They were looking forward to that. 
And Jesus no doubt taught about that. Jesus also taught about the future heavenly kingdom and what the heavenly kingdom was all about. He taught about that as well. But Jesus also proclaimed the internal, invisible kingdom. It was a kingdom that they wouldn't be able to see like they'd hoped they would see. But God would come in and touch hearts and people would recognize Jesus as the Messiah and their hearts of stone would be turned over and changed. Jesus, through this proclaiming of the gospel, would be a proclamation of this new covenant, which the shedding of his blood would usher in the new covenant, would take away the old covenant and render it outdated. And so this would be the message that Jesus would be proclaiming. Notice what else took place in verse 35, healing every disease and every affliction. I think it's interesting as you look at that, that he says, healed every disease, every affliction. There was not a disease, there was not an affliction that Jesus couldn't take care of. We think sometimes uh, today about leprosy. And leprosy is not a problem like it used to be in the ancient world. But leprosy was a disease that couldn't be cured. But yet Jesus could come and through a touch heal leprosy. Through a word spoken, heal leprosy. There were people who could not overcome that one illness, death. But Jesus could. He brought back people from the dead. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. Blindness was something that was very rampant during that time. And Jesus could heal blindness as well. So all of those afflictions, Jesus was able to take care of. And all of the miracles that Jesus did were just simple signs that he was who he claimed to be, that he was God in the flesh, that he was God's own son. And the evidence was there in those miracles. And those miracles verified the authenticity of his message. I am who I claim to be. And it was authentic because of the signs that were there. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would do those signs, authenticated through his miracles. But so many people ignored those. So many people missed those. Jesus was able to fulfill so many prophecies and he proclaimed those prophecies in the synagogues. But so many people overlooked those. The miracles that he did were signs as well, but those were overlooked. As Jesus came, that's what his compulsion was, as he came and as he ministered, as he taught, as he proclaimed. But we see his compassion uh, in verse 36. It says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. As we look at the New Testament and as we move through the Gospels, time and time again, we see Jesus looking at the crowds and we read that he had compassion. You see, Jesus in his ministry was all about the people. He saw the people and he had compassion when he saw them. This word that is here for compassion carries that idea of having a pit in your stomach. When you see a loved one or you know of a loved one and they're hurting, they're going through something and you get that little pit in your stomach, that little anxiety, that little roughness, that uneasiness. That's what Jesus felt as he saw the crowds. He had that pit in his stomach. He had that, that compassion for them. 
He felt sympathy for them. He felt pity for them. And you know, as we look at Jesus' ministry, we see that this compassion that he had, this compassion is what brought about his ultimate mission. This is Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what drove him. That's what caused him to go to the cross. That's what caused him to go through all of the persecution and everything that he did. His compassion for people, wanting to see them rescued, wanting to see them saved. That was what drove him, was his compassion. Now, as he looked at them, he had compassion for them. But look at verse 36. It says, because they were harassed and they were helpless. The word here for harassed means to be lacerated. Now, in the New Testament, it's used metaphorically. But it speaks of this uh, affliction that they had. It speaks of how affected they were by the things that were around them. And it was a, it was a negative affliction that they experienced. Think about how the religious leaders treated them. The, the religious leaders, the ones that should have been shepherding them, the ones that should have been pointing them to the Messiah, the ones that should have been protecting them and, and guiding them. Instead, they were not leading them to the truth of Christ. They were leading them away from Christ. Instead of saying, here is the Messiah, here is the one who's here, they led in a different direction. These religious leaders were bullies. They led and cause people to fear them. This is John 9, verse 21. Remember when Jesus helped the blind man to see and he, he spit on his hands and rubbed it on his eyes? And then the guy never saw Jesus and the religious leaders came and asked him about it and he says, I don't know, he just spit and I can see. And then they questioned his parents and they said, you must be lying to us. He must not really be able to see. John 9, 21. But how he knows, this is they questioned the parents. And his parents said, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus as the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue meant no religious access whatsoever. They wouldn't be able to worship God as they were accustomed to worshiping God. And that was a fearful thing for them. And so they didn't want to confess Jesus as the Christ. And so many people lived in that fear. Instead of being led to Jesus Christ, they lived in fear because those religious leaders uh, came after them and harassed them and made it difficult for them. And if they were unwilling to follow anybody but those religious leaders, it was trouble for them. They lived in fear, fear of being disciplined. Disciplined. The religious leaders gave them laws that even themselves couldn't hold up. This is Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, 
but they themselves, the religious leaders themselves, were not willing to move them with their finger. So the religious leaders harassed them, hindered them from entering the kingdom of God, not pointing them to the truth. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen today? Aren't you glad we live in a society that doesn't know about all of the isms out there? Hinduism, Muslimism, all of those isms they don't know anything about. All of those false teachings that, that take people away from Jesus Christ. Think about all of those false teachings that give people a false sense of hope. Some people are even gathered in churches today where the word of God is watered down. Gathered in churches today where pastors are preaching and they share something that contradicts the word of God. That's alive and well today. Those leaders neglecting to share with them the word of God, teaching that salvation can be obtained from, from good works. This is what they were experiencing. This is the harassment that was going on. And this is something that happens in our nation. This is something that's going on in the world today. Satan is behind all of it. Do you know that Satan is the founder of every false religion? Satan comes in and does it just a little bit off. So that instead of heading to the true north and, and following Christ, they're heading just a little bit off. So they never find Christ. Satan is behind that. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds the eyes so they can't see Jesus. He's at work. He's at work. Some of these who were there, who had been harassed, who were helpless, they came and they were troubled about their own sin. The weight of their own sin, the guilt of their own sin was overwhelming them and, and they could not get through that. They were feeling the burden of their sin and it couldn't be overcome. They were trapped. They were helpless. They were hopeless. They were trapped in that condition. They were trapped in that spot and they were doomed in their trespasses and in their sins as a result, in desperate need of a Savior. And as Jesus looked at them, he saw them and he had compassion for them because he knew they were hopeless and they were helpless. Verse 36 continues and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't know how many of you are ever raised around sheep, but sheep, they need shepherds. Sheep are helpless and they're defenseless. They're not very fast. They can't outrun danger. They can't swim. If they get wet, they drown. They can't, they can't swim. They are not born fighters. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. But you don't count sheep because you're reminded of their fighting ability. Sheep are not fighters. Sheep are prone to wander. And they'll just put their head down and eat and just walk away. They, they, won't, even, they won't even know where they're at. And and they're not smart enough to find their way back. They need a shepherd to guide them, to lead them. And as Jesus is looking at this group of people, he sees them as, as sheep without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. These people needed a shepherd. 
The religious leaders failed them. The religious leaders neglected them. And as Jesus looked at him, he just saw a bunch of neglected sheep. And in that position, they were in desperate need of a Savior. You know what? This is all of mankind. All of mankind is in need of a shepherd. You see, we are born sheep. And we, in our tendency as sheep, go astray. We walk astray without a shepherd. There's no hope of us. There's no hope for us. We're helpless as sheep without a shepherd. But you know what? Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. This is John 10, 11. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, we remain as nothing more than lost sheep. That's all we are without a shepherd. Jesus had such compassion for the people. He had such great compassion for them. The last thing we see here is his commission. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. What an exciting time when the harvest is ready. I don't know how it is for you, but when it gets to harvest season, it's kind of an exciting thing. And harvest season is an exciting thing for, for harvesters, especially when they observe and they see that the harvest is good. Each corn stalk having two ears of corn, sometimes three, that's a good thing. When you walk out there and your tomato plant has more red on it than green, that is a good thing. I don't know how my tomato plants do it, but they hold off, they hold off, they hold off, and then they shoot all of these green tomatoes on two days before the first frost. <laughs> it's an amazing miracle. And I look at those green tomatoes and I get excited about the coming harvest, but there's no harvest. So we just eat fried green tomatoes. <laughs> Maybe there should be a movie about that, I don't know. <laughs> Amazing when you drive by the apple orchards and you see those branches just overloaded with apples. Man, you can just taste that cider, can't you? You're just ready for that to come and pour that in your cup and it's a minute, 30 seconds in the microwave and you got hot cider. That's amazing. Put a cinnamon stick in that. Man, that's what I'm talking about. That's good stuff. It's exciting to see that. Nebraska. Nebraska. I used to, used to drive 45 minutes to the Schwann's Depot. And in Nebraska, a lot of times they do strip farming where they'll plant one year and then they'll leave a section of ground bare and then they'll plant the next section and they'll leave the section bare and they just plant that way. When you talk over the hill in the morning and the sun is first coming up and all of the wheat's ready, you're talking late July, and all of that wheat is golden, it's ready to be picked and made into bread. That is such a beautiful sight to see. Uh, and, and it just flows and just as far as you can see, you can see those wheat fields. That is one, that is the one beautiful thing about Nebraska. 
Yeah, I can't think of another one. <laughs> Wheat fields, amazing stuff. Darcy's dad lives in Darby and Derby, Kansas, and right outside of Derby, Kansas, are a bunch of cotton fields. Uh, Derby, Kansas, is right beside Wichita, Kansas, which is just above the the Oklahoma state line, and they have cotton fields there. And when you drive by and you see the cotton fields, it's just green. You don't think anything about it. But one year we went there and the cotton harvest was ready. And it looked like these plants out there just covered with a, a thin layer of about four inches of snow on top. And just driving by and you know the, cart, the cotton harvesters are out there just chomping at the bit, ready to harvest that cotton. Just billions of cotton swabs out there just waiting to be picked. What a great time. What a great time. And I know for some of us, we're not agriculturally minded. But as Jesus is sharing this, he's sharing this with a group of people who are in an agricultural society. And the harvest meant something to them. And they look forward to that time of harvest. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The farmers in the crowd chomping at the bit, thinking about a harvest that's ready, a harvest that's plentiful, a harvest that just needs harvesting. Jesus says this in verse 37, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. It's got people excited, people on the edges of their seats. And then he says, but... You know when you hear that, we're changing directions. The harvest is plentiful, but there's something. The harvest looks abundant, but there's not enough people, not enough laborers. Imagine those views of the harvest being ready, of peaches being abundant on the trees. And there's no one to pick them. Imagine those peaches and those apples falling from the trees and going to waste on the ground. No apple cider out of that apple. Think about all of those wheat fields and the snows coming, laying all of that wheat down. No flour to be made because that wheat is not harvested. Because there simply weren't enough laborers. Boy, that's something we've sure experienced over the last couple of years, haven't we? Going to get coffee at the coffee shop and they're closed because we don't have enough people working. Standing in line in Kentucky Fried Chicken and them saying, hey, we don't have enough people to work today. We're sorry. There's no inside dining because we don't have enough people to work. We see uh, chains, supply chains held up because we don't have enough people to work. It just seems to be going on, and we understand what the lack of labors does. Jesus speaks about the harvest, and he speaks about there not being enough labors to be involved in the harvest. The harvest being neglected, the harvest going to waste, the harvest needs to be gathered at the right time. Notice what Jesus says in verse 38. Therefore, pray. 
You guys were hoping we wouldn't have a message with therefore in it today, weren't you? <laughs> I saw that and went, oh man, they're never going to get away. Never. Therefore, because the harvest is plentiful. Therefore, because the labors are few, pray earnestly. Now, as we read this and we think about this, why would Jesus be talking about the harvest? Why would he be concerned about the wheat? Why would he be concerned about the cotton fields? Why would he be concerned about peaches, apple cider? But Jesus is not speaking about harvests like we think about harvest. Jesus is speaking about a harvest of souls. And as Jesus looks, there are people, he has compassion for them. They're hopeless. They're helpless. They need a shepherd. They need someone to come and harvest. It needs to happen. And there are no harvesters. There's no one to go to those people groups and share with them the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There's no one to share with them about the hope of reconciliation. They need harvesters. They need workers who will go into the harvest and carry out the ministry that God has set up. Therefore, pray earnestly because the harvest is ready. Pray earnestly. The New American Standard uses the word beseech there, and it carries the idea of begging. It carries the idea of begging, and it applies a, a sense of urgency. Something more than just simply asking, but recognizing that the need for workers is urgent because the harvest is about to go to waste. And we need laborers to go out into the harvest and gather the harvest. <laughs> as we look at society today, as we look at the world today, I don't know how it is for you, but I often wonder, how much longer will Jesus wait until he returns? I don't know how much time there is. In the days of Noah, it was rough. And as I look around, I don't know how far behind we are. From the days of Noah, we're promised that Christ is going to return just like it was in the days of Noah. It could be any time. It could be any time. I think we need to be earnest in our beseeching of the Lord. Send out labors. Send out labors. And notice we're praying to the Lord of the harvest. This is God himself. Only the Lord can send out workers into the harvest. Only workers sent by God can go into the harvest and harvest as they need to harvest. Because anybody else will not harvest the right stuff. People that are not sent out by the Lord will not gather a harvest. And God will judge those who are left behind. Those without Christ will stand before a holy and just God. And they will face him as a judge. Notice he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. We need to be praying for laborers. The harvest can't be brought in without laborers. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest needs laborers. 
And Paul says, or Jesus says, harvest is plentiful, but we need harvesters. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out harvesters. So we see the compulsion, we see the compassion, and we see the commission. But what do we take home from this? Why would we look at this on mission emphasis week and think about it? I think there's a reminder here that as Jesus saw the multitudes, he felt compassion. He saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw people being led astray. He saw people lacking wisdom, lacking the truth, who needed to know the truth. And he had compassion. Do we feel that same way? As we look at people, do we see people in the same way? Do we see them as lacking wisdom about who Jesus is? Or do we see them as helpless and hopeless? Because we have the message of Jesus Christ. We have the message of reconciliation. We can offer hope that nobody else in the world can offer. We have that hope. Do we see those people with that kind of compassion? Hey, I know exactly what you need. Because we have that in Jesus Christ. Do we have that kind of compassion? The harvest is plentiful. We look at society. We look at the people around us. There's a whole bunch of people who need Jesus. I love that saying, and you see it all over the place. And it's probably mentioned at every missions conference you've ever been to. Untold millions, still untold. There are people groups in this world that still don't have the Word of God in their language. Thousands of people groups without the Word of God in their own language. How many of us have more than one Bible in our own language? Probably even brought them all with you today, didn't you? On your phone. We haven't. So much of the world doesn't. So much of the world doesn't. So many in this world need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 14 says this. How then? Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone proclaiming, without someone telling them? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Laborers are few. If we don't send laborers into the harvest, how will they hear? As people who have shepherds, we have the shepherd, the good shepherd. We know him. As people who've heard the message of Jesus Christ and who've recognized Jesus as the Good Shepherd, 
How can we as sheep not be telling other sheep where to find the food? How can we as sheep not be leading other sheep to the living water? How is we as sheep, how can we not be leading them to the good shepherd and saying, this is the one that you need. This is the one who protects us. This is the one who can give us eternal life. This is the shepherd that they need. Those of us who know the way to the good shepherd, we need to be taking and leading others to the good shepherd. Those of us who've been a part of the harvest, who recognize Jesus, we need to make sure that there are labors for the harvest. Have we been praying for laborers? Have we been praying for laborers to go into the field and labor? My grandpa passed away a number of years ago, and I had the opportunity to do his funeral. And the church that's right there near their house is the church that I grew up in. So I got to go and stand in the pulpit that I sat and watched and preached from. And I got to preach from that at my grandpa's funeral. And I remember walking in the door and our, our pastor was killed in a car accident a number of years ago and his wife still attends church there. And I walked in and, and she saw me and she said, Jimmy was praying for you. I was that helpless and hopeless kid. But somebody prayed for me. He thought it was impossible. <laughs> but he prayed that somebody else would come along and pick up the torch and be that next generation of laborers. Are we praying that as well? I mean, some of us are getting up there in years. 23 now, 24, almost over the hill. Are we praying for that next generation? That next generation needs laborers. And I know we look at the next generation and we complain about them. Man, they're on their phones all the time. But do we pray for them? Do we pray that God would raise up laborers out of that next generation? Generation X, Y, Z, whatever they are now, I don't know. Are we praying for that generation? Are we praying the kids would come from our church and go into the field? That they would be a part of the harvest? Are we praying that? Have you been praying that you might find work? Sometimes we pray for work that we want to find in the world. Pray that I'd get a job. But are we praying that we as laborers might find work? Sometimes we're in the grocery store and harvest is plentiful there. Are we praying for an opportunity to labor in the field? Maybe it's shaped like Meyer, maybe it's shaped like the place you work at. But are we praying for an opportunity as a laborer to be put to work as a laborer? Have the opportunity to share Christ with somebody? Are we praying for that kind of work? That work in our own lives? It's easy for us to pray for the others. I hope these kids do something with their lives for crying out loud. 
But are we praying for that for ourselves? Talking to a pastor friend, they do church planning in Utah. He calls me, he's about 70 years old. Calls me and he says, hey, Darren, I need you to pray for me. I said, all right. He said, Gloria and I are 70 years old. He says, I think we got one more church plant in us. Pray for us that we can go and plant a church. 70 years old, shouldn't he be thinking about retiring by that time? He's thinking about the harvest. Wants to be a laborer in the harvest. Harvesting souls. Planting a church in Garden City, Utah, is where he's at. Planting a church. Praying that God would use him. Praying that God would be glorified in him. Are we praying that we would be put to work as a laborer? Whatever age we are, God can use us as a laborer. Do this test for me. Take a deep breath. Blow it all out. One more time. Now this time, put your hand in front of your face. I should have done that first because some of you had coffee breath. But if you feel that move on your hand, you still have breath in your lungs. God can still use you in labor. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you know the Good Shepherd, you can tell other sheep where to go. God can still use you. As we think about people around the world, people around the world are in need of Jesus Christ. We think about some of the areas that we hear on the news. Some of them are, are trapped in communism. Some of them are trapped in Hinduism. Some of them are trapped in Islam. They need to know Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know if I could go to an Islam country. I don't know if God would lead me there. But you know, there are laborers who are going there. There are laborers who are, who are ministering there. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the country. Uh, it was on the news once. Uh, it's called uh, Ukraine. Saw a message about a couple God had put on their heart that the people of Ukraine needed the gospel. They know that there are people in Ukraine that are dying and going to eternal death without Christ. And they look at Ukraine and they say, you know what? I'll take the gospel there. And they're willing to go. We need harvesters like that, don't we? We need people that look at the harvest and say, you know what? I'm going into that. And they run headlong into that. Pray. Pray for those laborers. Pray that God would stir in our hearts to find out how we can help in that labor. How, can we, how we can be a part of that work. Because the harvest is plentiful.